From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. What is your favorite comfort food? That's a really hard thing to, (laughs) I don't know, to pick. But if I have to pick just like one dish, it's going to be sopitos. My family is from the state of Colima, where they're known for their sopitos, and they're much smaller and a lot thinner than what you're going to find all throughout Mexico. Uh, But they're these little fried corn cakes that are topped with like ground beef or shredded beef and all sorts of really good toppings. Okay, my favorite comfort food is lasagna. So my favorite thing right now, I'm eating Meyer lemon risotto, finished with olive oil and just a touch of basil wilted into it. My favorite comfort food mashed potatoes. Comfort food would be borscht, the best soup on the planet. My comfort food really varies. I love sweet things. My favorite comfort food is a cake, preferably chocolate, maybe with a little bit of ganache on top, maybe with a little bit of candied orange inside, or maybe a little candied ginger, or maybe a little dash of of booze in the ganache. For me, Comfort is a warm tortilla with a plate of super lardy beans and a chili, or, you know, a pint of ice cream. Lately, this crazy Nestle Road ice cream a local LA chef made, to be extremely specific. But when we thought about putting together a comfort food show, our hive mind went immediately to soup. And nobody likes soup as much as our next guest. Okay, actually, plenty of people do, but she is definitely a super fan. And since winter has finally arrived here in Southern California, it's the perfect time to make hearty warming broths. Here to inject a soup song of brothy know-how into our show is writer and cultural commentator Anne Helen Peterson. Welcome. Well, I am so happy to be here. I never thought I would be a, a soup aficionado on the the radio, but I am happy to be here. Well, that's the beauty of modern life, don't you think? Yes, you can be many things. I am many things. (laughs) Did your soup love begin as a child? Was it something that was in your family? Uh, You know, we really did not eat a lot of like the soups that I eat now, which are, I, I mostly eat chunky soups or meal soups. That's how I think about it. Not like a soup and something else. Uh, I had a lot of canned soup as a kid. Like, I just loved it for lunch. I loved the process of, um, of like, getting all the broth out, you know? Like, this is especially with soups that are more like noodle soups. And I think that part of the reason I loved it is I would often read while I ate my lunch. And, and I also could make it myself as a kid. And so I would make it myself and sit down and have this really like contemplative time where I could just read my babysitter's club book or whatever it was I was reading. And that really continued on into adulthood. Well, that sounds exactly like me. <laughs> um, you recently launched your second annual soup extravaganza. Can you describe what that is? Yeah, yeah. So I have a newsletter, Culture Study, that goes out to, it's like 100,000 people now. And we have weekly subscriber threads that are for people who are paid members. You know, sometimes it's like, what are you reading? Sometimes it's a more philosophical question. And sometimes it's, what, it's soup time. What soup are you making? And last year, we had an enormously successful thread of your favorite soups, right? And people sharing, linking out to their recipes or transcribing them too. 
And then this year, I was, you know, I wanted to do it again. And I said, well, I know some of you shared your favorite soup last year and you can share that soup again. But also there are so many second and third and fourth level soups. Like we could talk about soups forever. And I, people just get really excited about it. I think in part because soup is not like a super high level of difficulty in terms of um, making. It also teaches you how to cook in a lot of ways, just because the order is oftentimes very similar. Like you almost always start with some form of onion um, and then go forward from there. And then I also think there are just so many cuisine variations. So whatever your background is, there's a soup that you can contribute. I know you're a big fan of the chickpea stew with orzo and mustard greens from Melissa Clark, yep. who is a friend of the show. We talked to her on Good Food a little while back. What is it about this particular soup that um, you love so much? Well, I have, um, I, there's a bit of soup blasphemy about me, which is that I loathe celery in soups. And <gasps> oh, so, that makes me so sad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't love celery generally. Like I like raw celery. It's just, you know, it tastes, it's a vehicle for good things. But it, there's something about it in soups that I've never liked. And this particular soup, you can use celery if you want, but the suggestion that Melissa Clark makes is to, to put fennel in there. And it it's just, it's wonderful. And there's also, there's rosemary as well. And it, the flavors just come together in this just very surprising mixture that feels very filling and, and delightful. And I also love too that like when I first saw the recipe for the soup, I thought, no, this isn't for me. Like this is not a soup that I'm going to like. And my best friend made the soup for me. And I was like, oh, this isn't going to be very good. And now I'm a huge convert. So, that, you know, any story that has a, a backstory like that, I always love too. So this, this crowdsourced nature of your project, the thread... How often do you find something in the thread that you just embrace and becomes a um, like a deep part of your repertoire? Mm, pretty often. Well, I you know I use it for when I have gone through my faves, right? So I'm like, okay, well, you know, right now in the Pacific Northwest, we've been making soup for about a month and a half. So I've gone through like the ones that immediately come to mind. And now I'm on the second order soup. The other great thing is that um, a couple of members put together a Google spreadsheet with, <laughs> with all of the with the links. This is for last year's and I think they've added a bunch for this year. So you can also have one place where you can go to that has a lot of them cataloged. That is amazing. <laughs> I know. So, so you call them kind of first order and second order soups as sort of like varsity and the JV team. Yeah, yeah. I always, I always think that way because I grew up in a small town where, you know, what sports level you were on in high school is a big deal. So I often think that way. So shout out a couple of the varsity. Oh, my varsity. So the aforementioned orzo chickpea soup. I love um, Alison Roman's chicken and dumplings. That's for a special time because it takes a while. But like I made that for, I think, like a Christmas Eve and it was just delightful. I do a sort of improvisational carrot, parsnip, sausage, kale, and cannellini bean that I just really love. There's a Tuscan farro soup that is from New York Times Cooking that is incredibly simple and is just a, a real delight. Like it makes you feel like you have accomplished something and it takes you 15 minutes to, to make. So those are all my first order soups. 
And what would be on the JV team? <laughs> well, I just made a tortilla soup for some variation uh, just today. And it's going to be good, right? I, I'm actually not frying the tortillas myself. I'm just going to crumble up some tortilla chips in there and then add all the, the good stuff on top. But I think that that is sort of a second level. Any soup that really is more of like a puree and thus demands some sort of accompaniment. Like I love butternut squash soup, but if you're making butternut squash soup, then you probably should have like a robust salad, you know, other parts to, to go with it. And for me, sometimes that makes more work instead of one of the things I love about soup is it's all in one pot and straightforward. Yeah, and I have to say, despite having made, I mean, millions of gallons of soup for my restaurant and... <laughs> And one of the most popular ones was this pureed minestrone we made. Mm. I just don't think, I don't get a lot of pleasure from pureed soups. Yeah. I need to chew. Same. And I love, I love the, the permission to put cheese on top. <laughs> so like <laughs> I, the, the orzo um, chickpea soup, you also put Parmesan on top and it's just delightful. Like it's just an incredibly pleasurable experience. <laughs> Are you going to keep the soup extravaganza going every year? Is a community cookbook in your future? <laughs> you know, that reminds I would love that because I grew up in a, a church where there's a lot of community cookbooks and a lot of the um, my memories of recipes that my mom would make were from her her and her family's old Lutheran cookbooks back in Minnesota. And there was something so wonderful about a recipe's name just being like, Irma's soup number three, <laughs> you know, like those <laughs> sorts of just very basic names. That would be really, really wonderful, I think, and people would love it. Because part of the problem with the way that we consume recipes today, especially online or people who aren't deep into cookbook culture, is it does feel very scattered and it feels ephemeral. And I, I love when I have a cookbook, I always write next to it because this is what my mom does. I write who I made it for <laughs> and any notes about it. But I love that that memory of the specific date and anything else that was happening. And I, if there could be a way to kind of put that all together in one place to have a physical copy of it, it would be really lovely. This was so much fun. Thank you so much, <laughs> Anne. It's my delight. I usually talk about very different things in interviews and soups. <laughs> so this has been such a pleasure. That was writer Anne Helen Peterson getting splashy with soup. You can find a link to her newsletter, Culture Study, as well as a link to one of her favorite soup recipes on our site. Go to kcrw.com slash good food. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. Fewer foods are as comforting as a dumpling. Born of peasant cooking, the Polish pierogi has taken its place as the country's signature staple. On a quest to prove that Polish food was more than just dumplings, food writer and cook Zuzza Zat came, in her own words, full circle. And what materialized was a new book dedicated to the pillows of comfort. Hi, Zuzza. 
Hi there. Thank you so much for having me on. What is your earliest memory of making pierogi? Um, It was on the ninth floor of my grandma's communist block. Um, I grew up in communist Poland until I was eight. And her kitchen was tiny. I mean, it barely fit two people in. Um, But she was there and she was actually a cook by profession, but also she would cook food for all her extended family. She had four children, um, you know, all their families and then all her neighbors as well. And we had these feasts at her house. So she would make huge amounts of food and she spent such a long time in this kitchen and I would often help her make pierogi. But having small hands, she often had to take the pierogi after me and pinch it again just to close it because it's very difficult for little children to uh, close them properly. <laughs> is is there um, is there a very traditional filling that is found all the time, everywhere in Poland, that people would find surprising? Um, Well, the most popular filling, um, I think, in Poland year-round and um, in the diaspora as well, uh, would be the pierogi ruskie, which are now being renamed in Poland as Ukrainian because that is actually more accurate (laughs) as to where they were said to have come from. And they are filled with tfarug, which is like a, a farmer's cheese, you would call that in America, caramelized onion and cooked potato. So delicious. How do pierogies vary regionally throughout Poland? Does landscape figure into the fillings or seasonality? Absolutely. So in the summer, everywhere around Poland, you'll find bilberry pierogi, that's the wild blueberry we find in the forests. And you'll often find people sort of selling it by the roadside that have been picking in the morning. Um, So that's the most popular summer one. Um, Christmas Eve, everyone will have sauerkraut and uh, wild mushroom pierogi, almost everyone. Some people might just have mushrooms, but on the whole, most people will have sauerkraut mushrooms on the table. However, there are also lots of regional varieties as well. So, for example, in the mountains, you might have pierogi, like the ones actually I've been making recently because everyone loves them, is with a fresh cabbage and bacon. And in Poland, you would use brinza cheese, which is a sheep's milk cheese, but you can use feta instead. So it's very, very similar. In the north, where you're by the Baltic Sea, you would find Fish pierogi are very common. So once you have pierogies and you've cooked them and they've floated to the top of the simmering water and you've skimmed them off and put them in a bowl, is sour cream and melted butter kind of the all-purpose topping for most of them? I would say that sour cream goes with most pierogi because it just goes so well with the dough. For me personally, I would put them in the butter bath and then fry them a little bit as well. I mean, the sweet ones, especially with sour cream, is a must. With the savoury ones, you, you can have it, but not always. There's various different toppings. It's called okrasa in Polish. That just basically means topping. So the most typical one, I would say, is uh, caramelised, slightly crispy onions. Some people would have a bit of bacon in there. One of my grandmas would always just have little bake, crispy bacon bits with any kind of dumpling, apart from sweet ones, obviously. Um, so everyone, I guess, has their own favourite ones. Uh, recently, 
I went to a new, new pierogi joint in Warsaw and they had a crispy fried uh, celeriac, which I've Ooh. never had before. But I thought that's a really interesting vegan option, actually. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. So actually, I think anything kind of caramelized and crispy on top works pretty well. And then like, you can kind of just with the sweet ones, I just go quite wild, actually, you know, with any kind of chocolate pierogi, I'd like to kind of, you know, grate a bit of chocolate on top. Honey goes really well on all the sweet ones as well. Chocolate pierogi? That's in the modern section. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Leave us with a couple of of festive ideas since holidays are are coming up in the not-too-distant future. Sure, I'd love to. So the first one that comes to mind, because um, Nigella Lawson picked to feature it, so I'm really proud of this recipe now. (laughs) And it's deep-fried dessert dumplings with rum and poppy seeds. And they're almost like little donuts covered in this rummy poppy seed mixture. But it just has that kind of quality of um, of a Polish Christmas, you know. It's sort of that kind of decadence and the poppy seeds are so traditional. You know, they have been used since pagan times, really, in all kinds of sort of festive rituals. And actually, um, my auntie, because my my mum has never heard of this recipe, but when she talked to her cousin about it, my aunt remembers uh, something like this being hung in bags on the Christmas tree. That's fascinating. Were the were yeah. the poppy seeds used to ward off the evil eye? Uh, yes, I mean they were known to kind of uh, offer protection and fertility and uh, abundance. So interesting. Well, thank you so much, Suzanne. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was lovely. That's Zusa Zach. She calls herself a storyteller cook and encourages everyone to eat more food from Eastern Europe. Author of Polska and Amber and Rye, her latest book is Pierogi, over 50 recipes to create perfect Polish dumplings. We've got two recipes from Zusa that are perfect for your holiday celebrations. The sauerkraut and wild mushroom pierogi and the deep fried dessert dumplings with rum and poppy seeds. Yum. Amish soul food sounds a bit like an oxymoron, but to Chef Chris Scott, that's the taste of home. Blended culinary inspiration, in this case, Southern and German, seems very relevant and encapsulates who we are now as a nation. You may remember Chris from his appearance on Top Chef's 15th season in Colorado, but he's here today to look back at seven generations of his family and to pay homage. It's lovely to have you with us. Thank you for coming. Absolutely. My pleasure. In your book, you talk about how soul food doesn't begin and end in the South. Could you talk about the confluence of Blacks and Amish coming to the region, sharing a fear of persecution and approaches to cooking? Well, sure. I I definitely want to start with how soul food and, and, and just how you kind of mentioned in the beginning how Amish and soul food just kind of have that strange kind of, uh, of of sound to it, but but Southern food, soul food, is regional. So, for example, my my ancestors are from Virginia, you know, coastal 
Virginia, and that that part of the country is you know called Tidewater people. So you have a lot of those coastal flavors with the crab, the shad roe, the shad, different seafood influences that that incorporate with that southern feel. You keep on moving further south, and now you're in the Gullah Geechee. You know, down by the the Carolinas, more okra, more you know African influence. You keep on moving further south. Now we're in the Panhandle of Florida, from the Panhandle of Florida to you know Mississippi, Louisiana, more Creole influence in the soul food, and then you keep on going further west, and now you're moving more into barbecue country. But then you come back up into where I am. And then the blacks who migrated north into the area where I was, German, Dutch, Amish influence. So over time, that southern influence, those southern flavors, that southern cuisine intermingled and fused with what was right there already. And so then that food was born. So maybe, you know, 50, 60 years after they already made that move to be there, that's when I was born. And that was pretty much the only food that I knew at the time, and when I just coined the phrase Amish soul food on, on, on Top Chef, you know, of course it sounded weird, but the more that they saw the food, they can really see exactly what I was talking about and more so taste it. And there's so much, there's so much commonality in terms of an agricultural-based way of looking at food. Talk to us about the Amish pantry. What does it look like? Well, uh, for me, it's definitely a lot of sugars and vinegars and bright flavors, you know, because those are probably some of the mainstays that go into all of that food, especially when you're doing things like your chow chows, you know, vinegar and sugar. And of course, whatever that vegetable or fruit that you're using to turn it into a chow chow is there. But also a lot of cornmeal, a lot of the molasses, uh, a lot of corn in general, especially when it's in season. The one thing about Southern food that a lot of people, you know, confuse all the time is that they always assume that it's just or, or, or mainly chicken, fried chicken, watermelon, red velvet, things of that nature, ribs and stuff. Black people were were too poor to kind of have that on a regular basis. So a lot of of dishes that came from black homes during that time, a lot of black families, including our family, we had a garden, you know, to where you would grow your carrots, your onions, your potatoes, and so forth. And you would pretty much make a, a nice little stew on the regular, sometimes with meat, sometimes without. If you were lucky enough to flavor your broth, you would have a chicken bone or a beef bone to kind of do that. And then there was always, always, always cornbread because that was cheap. You know, I remember as a kid when I used to go visit um, cousins in Amish country outside of Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. I was fascinated by the jars of chow chow because it was so different from anything we had in in California. Could you um, talk a bit about what it is and the kinds of variations that you might be doing this time of year? Yeah. Chow chow essentially, I guess, basically put, for those that might not know, uh, it's kind of like a relish, always sweet, always sour. A lot of people, if you go to the Amish country, you'll always see corn chow chow, which is a very popular one at, at the end of the summer when when corn is really, you know, at its peak. They cut that and then they and then it, they will uh, make a chow chow out of that. But I use all kinds of 
of vegetables from okra to beans. So anything that you kind of had at the end of the summer is already in the can and already on the shelf. Chow Chow has this sweet and sour profile, but definitely mm-hmm. on the sweet side. Is it possible to make a Chow Chow with less sugar or will the recipe just not turn out correctly? No, no, no. You could absolutely do that. I mean, as far as keeping it in the can for for very long, it might be a little bit tricky for that. But But if you're like me, I might, you know, can up about maybe three, four cans at a time. And within, you know, a month or two, it's totally gone, you know, so I never really have to worry about spoilage or anything. But I remember one time going back to Nana's house and seeing some old peaches that were like behind, you know, some old, you know, tools or something. And it was a can of peaches from 1976. I mean, I definitely wouldn't have, (laughs) I definitely wouldn't (laughs) have busted it open, you know, but it was like, wow, you know, you think about how long they would keep things on the shelf. And I remember we had a, we had a Concord grape uh, in our backyard, you know, so Nana, every single season would make the, the Concord grapes, you know, so that those were always, you know, in the basement. Give us a glimpse into your crispy city mouse scrapple. I would assume that since you're from Philly that you know what scrapple is and hopefully you enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I do. I mean, when I was a kid, I thought scrapple was just the weirdest thing ever. But yeah, right. sure. <laughs> Yours looks really fantastic. Right. Thank you. I don't add as many of the ingredients that the Amish do. But then again, it all depends on who I'm cooking it for. At the restaurant, I would use some of the innards, but a lot of like the pork butt, the pork shoulder. You know, but if I'm really trying to do it authentic and real and 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 again, depending on where I'm cooking, if I'm down south doing an event, I'm going all out. You know, I got the heart in there. I got the livers in there. I got the spleen in there, you know, really chopping it up and and getting all those flavors. But essentially, you know, it, it's, it's always the standard. You make that court bouillon, a lot of sage, a lot of that pork flavor, some smoked ham hocks. That's. One of the things that I put in there, I like it to be a little bit smokier. Of course, the innards to give it a bit more gamier taste. I always tell people all the time, if you eat foie gras, then you'll enjoy scrapple because people are like, oh my God, scrapple is so disgusting. You know, but you know what? If you eat pate and you eat foie, you know, then then scrapple is right up your alley. Well, thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. That was Chef Chris Scott. He's the owner of Butterfunk Biscuit Company in New York. His new cookbook is Homage, Recipes from an Amish Soul Food Kitchen. We've got a recipe for his city mouse scrapple on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Tune in for the pasta, stay for the grannies. Vicki Benison introduced a YouTube audience to pasta grannies, wow, way back in 2015. The series begat a cookbook, and now Benison returns with a follow-up of recipes from our favorite nonne with a focus on more comfort. Hi, Vicki. Hello. Hi. Greetings, Evan. 
Remind us about your original objective when you first created Pasta Grannies on YouTube. Um, well, all those years ago, I'm amazed that I'm coming up for 10 years of doing it. Um, it's I, I noticed that women were not um, making pasta. It was only the older ones that were um, getting up at five in the morning um, to make pasta by hand every day. Um, and I thought, well, you know, someone needs to make a record of this. Um, and so I thought, well, we need to um, kind of travel around Italy and make sure we kind of capture all the different pasta shapes that are being made. And then as time went on, um, the women themselves became as important as the pasta. <laughs> yeah, and I have to say there's something about this second book, the joy that is evident on the faces of these women making these yes. dishes is considerable. The joy is evident, yes, always. I think they're always so thrilled um, that someone, as complete strangers, have come to visit them and to learn about what is actually very normal uh, for them, uh, making pasta every day. You know, we quite often have husbands in the background completely amazed. <laughs> <laughs> Although this, uh, we've just been in Abruzzo and uh, one of the husbands, who's 98, was so indignant that his wife was um, being filmed that he took himself off to the local park. <laughs> <laughs> was he indignant because she was getting attention? Um, I think he was indignant about everything. I think it was that she was the centre <laughs> of attention, that this was, you know, um, technology he didn't understand and also that she was going to do it anyway. <laughs> So the the first edition of the cookbook um, that followed the series was was really centered on pasta shapes throughout Italy, and this time you turn to just comfort foods, foods that seem like a perfect entry point actually to cooking in the fall and winter. I would love to just start off with one that's probably a real project, um, Palermo's stunning classic Sunday dish, the baked pasta. Oh, well, that was very funny because we first met um, the daughter up in a Nagra Turismo in the hills above Palermo, mountains, actually. They're sort of huge. And she said, when she found out what we were doing, she said, oh, you must film my mother. And um, poor mum, <laughs> she suddenly found this group of four people on her doorstep the next morning. It was a Sunday morning and timbalo was being made. Timbalo is classic Sunday lunch for everybody there, you know, and it's a bit of a faff, but it's well worth it, I think. It's absolutely one of the best timbalos. Could you describe it for us, please? Yes. Yeah, so you have these tiny little pastas um, called annellini and you mix those up. It's a mixture of ragu um, and the thing is lined and layered with aubergines or eggplants um, in America and then baked. And it kind of doesn't stay, it, it's sort of thick but it's not too solid sometimes timbales can be kind of you know you, you can cut them and they stay upright whereas this one doesn't it slumps slightly and it's absolutely delicious so tell me about 91 year old pina and her chestnut gnocchi i i have some really good chestnut flour um, that i need to do something with and i think this might be it yes so Pina lives right at the top of a mountain. I mean, it's terrifying. I, I just have to close my eyes, to, um, you know, as we approach the final kilometre. Um, 
So her life has been one of self-sufficiency and making do because you can't nip down to the um, supermarkets or the alimentari just to sort of, you know, when you run out of something. In fact, she is. She has a kind of side room of dried pasta and passata because in case anybody else who's visiting runs out, you know, during the summer holidays. And, uh, you know, when we first met her, her kitchen was this wonderful copper sulfate blue and there's a stove in the middle of the room. And the view from her sink is across the mountains of Liguria and it is the most breathtakingly um, beautiful um, part of the world and her kitchen is stunning. And she's terribly funny um, because she kind of goes, I just don't understand why you you want to film me make gnocchi. I mean, can't you make it yourself? <laughs> so, of course, gnocchi should be just, you know, potato and flour, a little bit of flour. But when, when wheat is expensive or you've got to go all the way down to the valley to get it, but, you know, chestnuts are on your doorstep, that's how you cut your, uh, your flour with chestnut flour. And equally, you know, her pesto is made with walnuts. And that's because um, where she is, it's beech forest rather than pine. And so that is how that recipe, her recipe, um, developed. When you look at the picture of her, it's hard to understand that she's 91. (laughs) I think it's all that exercise that keeps you fit. I mean, she also has a a wood-burning, a bread oven at the back. And she, every year, um, makes bread for the village. (laughs) So she's a strong woman that's kept going. You know, I talked a bit about the joy in the faces of these women, um, but I feel like the book captures another kind of beauty in these older women. It's it, it's quite moving and a wonderful reminder that aging does have its recompenses. Very much so. People tend to say, oh, how cute um, grannies are. And uh, yes, you know, they're, they're hugely generous and welcoming but have a backbone. You know, there's a resilience there and there's wisdom there and there's experience and all sorts of things that makes every single person that we meet absolutely fascinating. And, you know, if you spend, we sometimes are a little bit short of time when we're filming, but, you know, they will often share their stories of their lives and and it's just so fascinating. And and always hats off to these ladies because, from their perspective, they suddenly find, you know, four people come into their kitchens they've they've never met before. So that takes a little bit of courage. You know, we talk to the families, it's never the women in isolation. And so that that kind of gives gives you some idea of how adventurous um, they are as well. It's inevitable that when you shoot so many women, some will emerge as stars. Mm. Um, who in this particular collection really <laughs> captured the audience's heart? Uh, <laughs> so um, one of the standouts, and there are many um, uh, for us, is uh, Fanny, who uh, lives on Procida Island, just close to Naples. She's a reminder that you never stop wanting um, to look good and you and stop caring about yourself. I mean, she's now, I think, 98 um, and looks fantastically glamorous. And she, in preparation for our visits, always with the help of her carer, gets her nails done, gets out her jewellery, you know, goes to the hairdresser. Um, and so she kind of wants to wow. <laughs> um, and at the same time is still making herself, with sometimes with the help of her carer these days, because it was four years ago when we first met her, uh, just terrific food. 
and is full of glamour and pizzazz and, you know, hailed sailors down so that we could um, get a taxi back <laughs> uh, to Ischia. <laughs> you know, young man, <laughs> you're taking these people back across, the, you know, across the strait to Ischia. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> ballsy. Yeah. They're very ballsy women, very. we would say. That's, good. That's a good expression, ballsy, yeah. Well, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you about the grannies and, and your life. Thank you so much, Vicki. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for talking to me. Vicki Benesit is the creator of Pasta Grannies. Her second compilation of recipes is Pasta Grannies Comfort Cooking, traditional family recipes from Italy's best home cooks. Head to kcrw.com slash goodfood for Pina's gnocchi di castagne con pesto recipe. That's the chestnut gnocchi with walnut pesto that we talked about. And if you haven't seen the Pasta Grannies on YouTube, do yourself a favor and check them out. You can also follow the account on Instagram. I promise it will spark joy. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. This week, Los Angeles Times restaurant critic Bill Addison published his much-anticipated list of 101 Best Restaurants. The assignment is mind-boggling. Establish the 101 top restaurants in this glorious city we call home, rank them, and then write a short paragraph about each one telling us why we should eat there. It's really the equivalent of writing a guidebook to dining in L.A., and we are so grateful that he's up to the task. Hi, Bill. Hi, Evan. How are you? I'm good. It's great to have you back for this Sisyphusian task. (laughs) How do do you even approach doing it? Uh, With a lot of anxiety and strategizing and eating. So it looks like you've abandoned the alphabetical list and you're back to rankings. Let's go through your top 10, starting with number 10. Okay, here we go. Number 10, Providence, pristine seafood in the city's arguably white tablecloth uh, standard bearer. Number nine, Bavel, Ori Minashi and Genevieve Gergich's Arts District Restaurant, uh, articulating the flavors of North Africa and Western Asia, a.k.a. the Middle East. Number eight, Morihiro, the At Water Village Sushi Bar run by L.A. legend Morihiro Onadira. Seven, Moose Craft Barbecue, Andrew and Michelle uh, Munoz's Lincoln Heights Restaurant that sets the tone for a new school of Los Angeles barbecue. Number six, Taco Maria in Costa Mesa, Carlos Salgado's tasting menu built around corn varietals that he and his restaurant staff nixtamalize and grind into masa. Number five, Ennaka, Niki Nakayama's deservedly much praised Kaiseki restaurant. Number four, Republique for its all-day all-around California greatness. Number three, Cato, the relocated restaurant by John Yao, highlighting the flavors of Taiwan. Number two, Anajak, the Sherman Oaks Thai restaurant opened in 1981 and reimagined by the son of the owners, Justin 
Pichitrunsi to include draws like Thai Taco Tuesday and an omakase reimagined with Thai flavors. And number one, Hayato, a seven-seat Japanese restaurant in the arts district that is admittedly near impossible to score a reservation to, but if asked to name the single best cooking in Los Angeles, I believe Brandon Hayato Go is the one doing it. Wow. Such an interesting <laughs> list. And, Tell um, me. Go ahead. Bring it. I'm sure everyone's no, 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 no. got big opinions. No, you know what, what I love about the list is it tells you that it takes a while for a restaurant to reach the top. You know, it's not just populated with new names. It's it's people who have been working in the business at the top of their game for a while. And I think Hayato is, I am not surprised. I mean, it's stellar. So who made the list from Orange County, um, the San Gabriel Valley, Long Beach, and beyond? Long Beach has some really good activity going on there. I think that's absolutely a place to to watch for its growing culture in our region. I love Dima Habibi's Long Beach restaurant, Amatole, focusing on dishes from Palestine and Jordan, where she grew up. I'm excited about Selva in Long Beach, uh, a new Colombian restaurant, and I feel like we don't get those flavors um, very much. So I, I, that's that's what I'm I'm excited about in Long Beach. A few names from the San Gabriel Valley that I'm excited about: Wangjia, a newish restaurant for Shanghainese cuisine. Henry's is an exciting one. They serve food from the Hong Kong cafe traditions. It's really lovely. Grand Central Market and Smorgasburg are back-to-back in your entries right at the halfway mark. Um, tell us why you you put them like in that place and um, and maybe shout out one favorite at each location. It's interesting that you noticed that. It felt like a way right in the center of the list since we did return to ranking to call out these two places that are incubators of talents and yet are incredibly different, right? So one of them, Grand Central Market, has been around for 105 years. And Smorgasburg is this Sunday event at Row DTLA with, with this constantly changing lineup. At Grand Central Market, I will direct you to Shiku for Korean takeout, DTLA cheese for whatever Lydia Clark has on hand, and Nicole Rucker's Peerless Fat and Flour for pie. Um, lately at Smorgasburg, I love the pork belly breakfast burritos from Machine, the barbacoa flautas from Los Dorados, and tacos, including the dessert flan taco from Evil Cooks. So you have a Hall of Fame and 14 restaurants made it. Um, give us a, a quick rundown of a few of the highlights and um, and what were some what were the considerations that um, gave them the status? 
With the Hall of Fame roster, we're trying to point out some guiding lights so intrinsic to our dining culture that they deserve their own category, that they sort of transcend the notions of lists. So they include Gala Getza, the defining Oaxacan restaurant in Los Angeles, uh, Langer's for pastrami and the number 19 sandwich forever, Matsuhisa, which I think taught so many people about what, what sushi is or even could be in America, Pie and Burger in Pasadena, and, and Allen B's in Boyle Heights for their defining bean and cheese burrito. It's an easy list to put together, honestly, and it'll kind of develop and build on itself every year. We'll have kind of a separate map that you can follow for the Hall of Fame. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Thank you, Evan. Bill Addison is the LA Times restaurant critic. How many of his restaurants have you visited on his 101 list of restaurants? Visit latimes.com for the full list and get the premium print edition this Sunday, December 11th. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. As always, my thanks go to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Lori Kondarajan, and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. As you consider your end-of-the-year donations, don't forget about us. Love good food? Well, we rely on listeners like you to make the show sparkle every week. Just go to kcrw.com slash give. And if you don't need another mug or a t-shirt, choose the food bank option in place of a thank you gift and we'll match your meals. Once again, that's kcrw.com slash give. Truly thank you.